Welcome to the Actual Newscast. This is Tom Brooks, CEO of Actual News. This is our first foray into podcasting, and for the pilot episode I'm pleased to bring you a wide-ranging conversation with Matthew Taylor, CEO of the RSA. That's the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufactures and Commerce, a uh, UK-based think tank operating worldwide under the strapline 21st Century Enlightenment. Um, some listeners may well be RSA fellows, which, uh, which I am, uh, who are people involved with and supporting the work of the society. Um, others may be aware of this group's um, <laughs> kaleidoscopic array of speakers and the associated online lecture series, um, or the RSA animate short forms of those talks, or attend one of its academies, which it runs in the UK, uh, or be engaged with one of the society's projects in various parts of the country, like its business incubators. Uh, I hope I make my case. The, uh, the RSA is, uh, is vigorously active, fascinating, and a, a change-making organisation, to borrow a phrase from the presidential campaign, um, with many arrows in its quiver. Um, Matthew and I have a, uh, have a discussion about the organisation's mission in an increasingly fractured world. Uh, we dive off down a few of the tangents that that subject obviously presents um, and talk about some of the myriad issues facing modern society. Um, I won't subject you to a lengthy introduction, so I'll say a few words about actual news and commence the main event. Actual news, then, is a is a reworking of the entire concept of a news platform uh, into something which... Uh, which we deem to be fit for modernity. Um, news which reflects the needs of digital consumers and bucks the headline cycles demanded by by 24-hour news coverage. We we have no ads, no paywalls, no editorial agenda. Um, our, our vision and indeed our practice is crowdsourced, crowd-edited and crowd-paid-for news. Our um, our interface is completely different to anything else that you'll see. It's built on maps to encourage you to look for news by by region and by category, rather than by simply laying out a list of headlines and saying that's what's important today. Uh, we have a lot of features in the works to help use the power of the crowd to guide investigative journalism by crowd suggestion um, and microfunding uh, journalistic investigation campaigns. Uh, and to encourage varied social action in follow-up to address issues raised in reporting, uh, everything from fundraising to volunteering. Uh, we want to build a platform within the platform to enable that. So we think we think because we think that technology should enable us to do a bit more than react to stories on social media. Uh, in short, we are attempting to reshape the way news works from top to bottom. Um, everything from what I just said through to crowd-based fact-checking and disputation built into articles themselves. Um, and we're experimenting with novel ways to civilize comments, like encouraging video and audio comments uh, as, as a preference rather than the sort of keyboard warrior effect that you will often see on Facebook debates and inverted commas. Um, and we need your help. To, to write articles, uh, to give us feedback on the project, even to support its development on Patreon if you think what we're doing is worthwhile. We are currently operating in beta. Uh, visit beta.actualnews.com to use the site or actualnews.com for more information. And with that, I bring you Matthew Taylor. Okay, so I'm, uh, I'm here with Matthew Taylor at RSA House in London. Uh, we're going to have a chat about what the RSA does, Matthew's role in it, and world politics in general, anything else we get on to. Um, Matthew, it's a pleasure to meet you again. Um, perhaps we could start by talking a little bit about the RSA generally, what its, what its mission is, um, and, and what its general activities are around the world. Uh, so the... The mission of the RSA uh, is, is expressed in various different formulations, um, but rather than kind of reeling off the lines in our impact report or whatever, I think it's more useful to kind of get, try to get to the heart of it. The heart of it really is 
to enhance human agency. So uh, we pursue a world where everybody feels that they can be the author of their own lives. Um, and then that, to make that more concrete, uh, we have research in three areas in our research team, public service and communities, where the consistent point would be how can we organise government and public services, support communities in order to empower people individually and collectively to be able to solve their own problems, to control their own lives. Our work on uh, education, creative learning and development, the team's called, that's all around how is it we can equip young people, but also people throughout life to uh, be able to be fully rounded, fully developed human beings who have a sense of agency and possibility, not only a sense of it, but uh, uh, the tools to be able to pursue their ambitions. And, uh, work on the economy, uh, economy, enterprise and manufacturing strand is around how can we have an economy which is strong, sustainable, but also an economy which people feel they're active in, that they're not cogs in a machine, that they are economic subjects, not merely objects. So that's why we're interested, for example, in self-employment and new forms of finance. Uh, I'm doing a lot of work on the future of work on how it is we can make sure that technology doesn't reduce human agency but actually enhances it. Of course, you produced the, the report that uh, that was spoken about in Parliament a lot. I, uh, I, I, heard, the, I heard it referenced a lot in the, in the run-up to it. Um, how impactful would you say the the report into working practices was? Um, I think it remains to be seen fully because uh, the government responded very positively but that was primarily a kind of political move because I think that we had built up quite a lot of support for what we were trying to do during the commission. Um, some of the most important reforms, uh, changes around the minimum wage, around worker voice, around um, employment status are up for consultation. Um, so at the moment, I'm, my public position is I give the government four out of ten for implementation, but that could rise to seven or eight, depending on how they respond to these uh, consultations. And there the question is not merely will they respond positively, but even if they do respond positively, will they then find the parliamentary time or the political will to actually uh, drive ahead with this agenda? On the other hand, the thing that I am pleased about is that my report was called Good Work, the government's response is called Good Work, and this notion of good work, this idea that we should care about the quality of work in our economy, seems to be one which has moved more to the centre of debate. It, it wasn't really an idea people talked about very much a few years ago, mainly because perhaps we were more worried about quantity of work, but now there isn't really a shortage of work for most people. This quality of work issue is taken more seriously, and I'm pleased, for example, that the government has committed to uh, producing metrics, good work metrics, and uh, reporting on those metrics, and also that it's talked about good work as part of its industrial strategy. So it's not just talking about good work as a kind of nice-to-have uh, kind of um, part of its kind of social conscience. It's talking about good work as an element of how it is we have a productive and successful economy. Does that speak to the RSA's mission in, in a more holistic sense? Um, I'm thinking the way that you speak about an engaged and active citizen, it sounds very uh, Aristotelian, very sort of similar to sort of Rousseau's principles of an active citizen. Um, do you think that, I, I've been thinking about this a lot recently, how these things sort of tie together quite holistically, because my, my contention is essentially that if a citizen is going to be an active participant in, in a democracy, in addressing the kind of problems that, that we face, that the RSA is interested in, the world faces, then that ties together with their economic agency because, what, simply put, there are a lot more things to distract us and there aren't any more hours in the day. So the way that our time is marshaled, especially economically, has surely a great deal of impact on our, on our, on our agency politically as well. So I think there are lots of things wrapped up in that. Um, uh, I think that there is a very interesting question about why it is people seem to be so busy all the time and what it is that drives this sense of time poverty because you would have thought, well, other things being equal, that 
with technological progress and productivity progress, albeit the productivity is not progressing very well in this country, you would have thought we'd have in a world where actually uh, it was easier to get maneuver through our lives to uh, without being kind of overwhelmed by the kind of bureaucracy and difficulty and challenge of it. Managing our email. And that doesn't seem to be happening. And I, think, I actually think you know, it's a slightly abstract issue, but it's something that deserves to be written about. What, what exactly are the forces at work leading to this kind of sense that every single person you meet, the first thing they say is that they're tired and they're busy? And so and David Grave has written a bit about this in relation to kind of bullshit jobs. You know, and, and, like that. and I think that's a kind of interesting question, which is, you know, I guess we want things to happen in the economy which lead to jobs and economic activity. But then a lot of those things are things which human beings manage to do without for, you know, for almost the whole expanse of their evolution. So I think that's an interesting question, and one that's, worth, that's worthy of, 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 of more in-depth thought. I think that a second part of your conversation, which is around kind of agency and politics. So I've come to a kind of slightly a view on this which might some people might consider to be reactionary or lacking in ambition but I don't actually think we ought to see more people being involved in politics as a social good I don't think it's a social ill don't get me wrong and I you know I think it's much better if people do vote in elections but the fact is that national politics at least national policy making is not something that can be easily done through wide-scale participation. Now, some people argue about this, and there are some signs of some forms of technology which might be amenable to larger-scale kind of decision-making. Um, but I think that getting involved in politics is something that some people like to do. It is something that turns some people on, and, and that's fine, and I would like there to be more people. I'd like there to be more people who are more representative. But I don't have a kind of view, which is if you're not involved in politics, you're somehow not a fully-rounded citizen. Although, or put it another way, it, I have a, a view of what politics is, which is more expansive than saying politics is joining a political party or even voting in an election. I think the important thing is a sense of agency. And if your agency is best expressed through what you do in your community or what you do in your workplace or what you just do yourself as a creative individual, then that's fine. The system requires that a certain number of people are active and engaged and that those people are broadly representative. But I wouldn't say, if you said to me, what is the main criteria by which you would judge the health of a political system, a democratic system, I wouldn't say the number of people involved. Because also, if you look at kind of social media and Twitter and things like that, and kind of so-called clicktivism, it is possible to engage a lot of people in stuff that is quite shallow and doesn't necessarily take us forward. In fact, in some ways, takes us backwards. I, I agree with, with all of that. Certainly, I, I don't necessarily think people chasing campaigns on social media is is the healthiest thing for democracy it, 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 indeed you might be accused of reactionary for that you said I, I would consider that kind of engagement in politics to be quite reactionary in itself because well by its very nature it's, it's simply whatever pops up in your news feed it's not it's not something you've you've sought out yourself directly um, but I for, for, for me I think it's more a sense of of being informed in order to be engaged and having the time to be engaged if you want to be. Um, the, it, it is interesting that we've managed without all of these, all of these distractions, what we might call, we might term them, our email and our social media and all the various things that hoover up our attention. Um, but but they, do, they exist and they are very compulsive. Um, and that, I, I can't help but think something is, something is lost somehow in that. And that it's not a question of being involved in a political party. It's just a case of being informed enough to be enough to be any kind of. Oh yes, yeah. well, there's, there's clearly a huge issue about information overload and where is you get your information. And, and as you say, to kind of if you are interested in the world, one of the sources of kind of anxiety and dissatisfaction can be the sheer impossibility of being able to read all that you ought to read about all the things that you're interested in. And I've seen that change in, even in my own you know, even in my own lifetime. Um, and, and I think that's another interesting question, which is what are people's personal strategies? Now, obviously, 
it's pretty clear that for a lot of people, the personal strategy is just reading stuff that confirms your prejudices. You know, and that's a big problem. But in a sense, that is a subset of responses to a challenge which we all face, which is you cannot possibly read everything that can be read. You cannot possibly even read a kind of full cross-section of what should be read. Now, I think what's incredibly important there is kind of who are the intermediators. And what that, I think, leads me to, actually, is that who you trust becomes a very, very important thing. Because in the end, you are, you, know, you are beholden on those people who will look at the evidence for you. And that's why when you see real rigour and courage in uh, journalism, for example... It's incredibly powerful. So I'm two-thirds of the way through reading Andrew Hagen's 65,000-word article, and it's really a book, but it's in London Review of Books, about Grenfell Tower. And for me, it's one of the most powerful, brave pieces of work, I've journalistic work, I've ever read. Because he goes into a situation with a particular mindset and says in terms, in the article. He went in with the mindset, let's get the bastards who are responsible for this, and goes on a journey. And that journey leads him to uncomfortable positions. It leads him to say, actually, Kensington and Chelsea wasn't a bad council, and its response wasn't bad, and these weren't really kind of evil Tories. Um, and on the other hand, it leads him to say the fire brigade was pretty incompetent. You know, now... If you're a kind of left-wing person, you go into a situation like that, you're invited to condemn a Tory authority like everybody else has and, and praise like we all praise the emergency services. And you write an article saying, actually, the council paid rather well and the fire brigade's response was pretty poor. I mean, you re I, just, I read every word of that and I think, you know, yeah, he may have made a couple of mistakes here and there. But I now, I now believe I know about Grenfell Tower in a way that I could have read mountains of other stuff and all I would have learned, I would have learned a lot, but I'd have learned all of that through the prism of the particular prejudices of the person who was writing. Now, and writing. now I'm not saying Andrew Hagen is uniquely capable of stepping outside himself. Of course, we all have our kind of perspectives. But I think in the modern world, having, having sources and people that you trust is incredibly vital. And I think one shouldn't estimate how much that is about actually personal integrity and courage. You know, what's really interesting about this Andrew Hagen piece is really journalism failed catastrophically because it, the, the, you know, the media decided within 24 hours it was an evil Tory council and they failed everybody. This and that was the story. And it has been the story ever since. And, you know, that wasn't the, just the right-wing press or just the left-wing press. That was the press behaving like a bunch of mindless piranhas, I'm afraid. Is that? And that, so I, when I read this piece, on the one hand, I'm, I'm, I want to kind of put Andrew Hagen on a statue and I want to say I want Andrew Hagen to be the person who interprets everything in the world for me because I trust <laughs> him so completely. On the other hand, I'm, my blood runs cold because if the almost the entire media can decide that something is true that was not true, we're in a lot of trouble. It reminds me a little bit of the, uh, the, the strange Mr. Jeffries and the trial by media in that case. Mm. Uh, the, the chap had, of course, the, yeah. chap had, the, Bristol, chap had yeah. the chap had blue hair, hair, so they just decided, well, it must have been him. Um, the one difference there, like, I hear what you're saying, but the difference there was that was the that was the kind of usual suspects. That was the tabloids. <laughs> that was the kind of populist right wing tabloids is, yeah. that did that. The Grenfell Tower thing. It was everyone from Channel Four News through to the Sun. Well, the, do you think? Do you not think that this is a, a broader media issue in general, anyway? Because the media just just like you just like you and the RSA just like me and actual news we're, we're all competing for people's attention and news media it seems it seems has a tendency increasingly so and indeed as you say not just the usual suspects and, and the tabloids who've kind of always done this but um, increasingly other ones as well will take a particular narrative and just run with it or without necessarily giving it the nuance it deserves. Yes, I think that's right. But uh, you know, we're in, could, could, we're in danger of, of 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 lapsing into kind of truisms about the nature of, of, of journalism. But I think if, if I can kind of take us off in a different direction, make, make loop us back around to the RSA. Certainly, something I've been thinking a lot about, and 
nearly nearly starting to write about, but then and I often what I have an idea, I, I run, I go for a run or I'm on the exercise bike, I try and think it through and I haven't quite got this to land, but there's something that I've I've got in my mind and I and what I've got in my mind is how it, in many parts of our lives, important areas, it feels like there is no incentive and no reward for doing the right thing. So, you know, in journalism, journalists who report the truth, if the truth is boring and complex, there is absolutely no premium for that. When Andrew O'Hagan was clearly you know, paid a good sum by the LRB and he had employed a research team to write about Grenfell Tower. So that's unusual. And because he's such an authority figure and because the LRB presumably in the end said, you will, we all print whatever you write, although they must have found it quite confounding because the LRB have a kind of very left-to-centre orientation. Um, that's unusual. Most of the time, if you're a journalist and you go to your editor and say, look, here's the story and actually it's complex and it's not that exciting and we need readers to understand its full complexity, you know, you, you will not get rewarded for that. You will not. And... Um, and I think that's, you know, why actually it's interesting. I, mean, I don't read The Economist very much, but people, I do from time to time, people tell me the reason they like The Economist is it feels like it is a magazine which, in which people are told, right, that as close as you can to what the truth is. This is objective reality. reality. Yeah, even though The Economist has got a particular perspective, but they try to let, uh, let an issue breathe in a way that others don't. New York Times has its reputation too, as I understand it. Yeah. So, you know, that... So... In journalism, I think for most journalists, unless happen, they have that happy opportunity of being in particular uh, organs that are particularly committed to that, politics is the same. I mean, what is the political bonus that you get from not being sectarian, you know, not jumping on the net latest bandwagon, not, you know, adding to any kind of public outcry about something? You know, we saw, you know, Sir Christopher Chope you know, being kind of publicly vilified, you know, and yes, you know, he probably regrets it himself, but what he was actually doing was that he had a view about what, sh- pro- what, sh- what parliamentary process should involve, and he was doing what he thought was the right thing to do as an MP, which was, look, I'm not really interested in the issue, I just don't think this is the way in which Parliament should work. And he, you know, he got, you know, he got, I mean, I'm sure if there'd been a vote, he would have, you know, it'd been a vote on whether or not to, literally hang him, he would have been hung. I didn't assume when I read that that his objection was to uh, upskirting. Yeah, I, I didn't assume that anybody who understood the issue could, could have any rational but, you know, if you're, that. If, but if you're a but, jobbing MP and you think but, your job is to mm-hmm. sometimes say, look, I know what, I know, you know, where the kind of public mood is and I know where everybody wants to run, but actually, you know, process does matter and I'm going to do that and I'll be a bit dull. What do you get for it? Which is one of the reasons why, you know, we like politicians at the end of their careers, because in a sense they, they no longer have an incentive, you know, they don't, they, they no longer have incentives to behave badly, and so they may as well behave well. So I just worry, and I see this in, in business as well, I see in business, finance, and the financial sector particularly, again, what are the incentives to behave well? What are the incentives to say, no, actually, I'll keep my money in that company, even though it's short-term performance isn't great, and even though I can make money by cashing out, because I believe in what it's trying to do. So we often focus in society on the incentives for bad behaviour and examples of bad behaviour, but I wonder whether as big a problem is that in a world where you know, God is dead to most of us, mm-hmm. we don't feel that God is watching us and judging us, which has of course historically been the great incentive for doing the right thing. <laughs> you know? So you know, God isn't there watching us for most of us. <laughs> what what you know, what are the incentives in particular very important parts of our social structure for doing the right thing? Well, ideally, our own our own moral virtue, which which uh, an, an atheist, I suppose, would argue, is what invents godly morality. Anyway, it comes from us from the fir- in the first place, and then yeah. we and then we imagine this thing hovering over us, and it, and it is perhaps it's a perhaps it's a useful metaphor or something to channel us in that sense, but. Yeah, perhaps we do need something, something to well, the problem some is sort of moral centre to replace that. There's two problems with that, I think. The first is, we're, you know, we are only human beings. And so, of course, you know, we all wish that we were more saint-like and that we could do the right thing and nobody would know about it and, and that virtue would be its own reward. And, and, of course, we all do some things, I hope, that are like that. But, you know, in the end... 
positive reinforcement, social norms are an important buttress for that. And then secondly, also I think lots and lots of people say, look, ultimately I want to do good, but I can't do good until I reach the top. I can't do good until I am in power. I can't do good until I'm a newspaper editor. I can't do good until I'm running the company. So there's a constant means and ends argument going on, which is, well, I know this is crap, but I've got to do this to get to the position where I can change the system. Unfortunately, that doesn't really work either as an account because it tends to be that the compromises you've made by the time you, in that process, strip you of your capacity to be the brave person you wanted to be. Yeah, if, only I, if only I were a millionaire, I could do all this philanthropic stuff. Well, but precisely. Of course, but of course, the route there tends to be through, through banking or investment and things that tend to make one a little yeah. bit more self-serving. Um, so what's the answer to this? And, and this loops us in this enormous arc we've done back to the RSA. I think <laughs> part of the answer is institutions. So part of the answer is to create institutions which have a strong sense of purpose uh, and social capital binding people together where it becomes easier to do the right thing because the right thing is not you know, is the norm and there is a stronger sense of reciprocity and a stronger sense that if you do the right thing it is something that will be valued and that will benefit you and that will strengthen the institution to which you're committed. So part of the reason, you know, what one of the things I'm probably most proud of at the RSA, and it's it's an incomplete shift and it'll never be complete, is the shift from the RSA fellowship being something which felt like a kind of reward for individuals. You know, when I first started people became fellows as a kind of status symbol for their past individual achievements rather like a um, a minor honour. And over many years, we changed that, we were honest about it, and we said, no, actually, being a fellow is an invitation to future activism, to future uh, uh, collaboration with fellows to make a difference to the world. So changing the, changing the kind of culture, norms, assumptions of a voluntary organisation, in our case, nearly 30,000 fellows, you know, that's quite a big thing actually, and if you had, to, if I had to choose, and the RSA, I like to think, I think probably the case is in a much better position now than it was when I took it over. Not that my predecessors hadn't done good work, but it had just kind of, it, it had kind of lost a bit of energy, and, and there were certain issues, difficult issues that hadn't really been addressed. Just context changes. Context changes and all of that, but if you had to, if I had to choose the one thing I'm proud of more than anything else, it would be that you go and speak to RSA fellows now, and very few of them will say, I'm a fellow because you know I was the deputy bank manager of Barclays and East Grinstead and my work has been recognised. And they nearly all say, I've joined the fellowship because I believe in the RSA's values and I'm hoping to get involved in their work. That's, that's why I wanted to become a fellow a number of years ago. And, but indeed, I think that was on the cusp of that because it was still, you, you still have to be invited and referred. Whereas I think, you, am I right in saying you can just join? No, just join it. Just join now and... Um, in fact, you know, funnily enough, I was in Scotland uh, last week, the AGM in Scotland, and it was kind of, it was like a one interesting kind of um, vignette of all of this, really. So, on the one hand, our head of the RSA in Scotland, Jamie, got up and said to fellows, the most inter- one interesting thing is for the first time ever, the, the, the majority of new fellows in Scotland came through the website. So, they're people who, who came because they saw the public face of the RSA and its values and its work and they wanted to get more involved, didn't come through fellow get fellow, didn't come through invitations that we sent out, although we, we don't really send out much in the way of kind of... I mean, we, we, we do go to people who are doing the work in a particular area to see if we can get fellows not be interested in that, but we don't do we don't buy mailing lists or anything like that anymore. Um, so that was interesting, that, that the majority of people coming into Scotland are coming in now, presumably because of our work and our values, because that's what the website is all about, Second thing was that there was a guy there, a guy called Bill, who is one of the old school, you know, who really does think the RSA ought to be much more about kind of sociability between fellows and ought to be about making learned submissions to government consultations and is ambivalent about fellows doing things and having networks and setting up social enterprises and all of that doesn't really feel like what it ought to be about. And he and I have been having a kind of running debate for a year about this. Anyway, he came to the AGM, and he's a perfectly nice guy, and he got up and he made his point, and I, because he's a robust guy, I, I kind of answered back and said, no, I don't think that is the way that it is, and I think that if you 
it's all very well sitting around saying, well, why isn't the RSA like I want it to be? Make it like you want it to be. You know, you can form a network, you can do something, you can organise a meeting, you can engage people, do whatever, you know. It's a, it, the RSA is a kind of dressing up box. You know, open the lid and get inside and do what you want. Don't complain about other people doing stuff that you don't like or that you're not involved in. And there's no reason it has to be binary, right? I mean, you are still producing reports to government, like, like your work review, like yeah. the stuff that's on the website. There's, there's loads of it. Yeah, um, as long as fellows do stuff that is in line with our broad values, that's fine. And it might not be in my company. You know, there's a very active network in London of people who are kind of basically it's an arts, arts appreciation society. Well, yeah, that's I, fine. I, I see how if you do want a more engaged fellowship, of course, then it helps to be doing this more this all the outreach events and the program of public events and the videos and the animates, because it, in many ways, for, for, some, for someone like me, say even who I, I don't submit reports to government, I find that side of the RSA. As in game, I have my job quite stuffy as well, so I like looking through reports and stuff. But I find all that stuff as engaging as the reports, and it's nice to be able to flip between them. So that takes me neatly to the biggest challenge that we've got. And um, immediately after our conversation, I'll be interviewing the final, fifth and final person who's been identified by the trustees as a candidate to be the next chair of the RSA, because our previous chair, Vicky Haywood, our current chair, Vicky Haywood, is standing down after six years. Um, and so I meet all of them for half an hour, and in the end, it's the trustees who make the decision. But they are you know, guided by my my view to a certain extent. And what I've explained to all of those people is that the, the, the biggest challenge for the RSA is that I think the things that we do, we do as well as you know as well as most other people do those individual things. So you know we are you know we're not TED, but we're probably as the, the British TED, if you like. You know when it comes to kind of content online stuff, 600,000 plus YouTube followers and all that. So if it comes to kind of a platform for ideas, we're probably uh, about society, we're probably Britain's preeminent kind of platform, ideas platform. Secondly, we've got a really good research team. Uh, we're probably now one of the biggest general purpose kind of think tanks uh, um, in the country. And I think we do really good work, which isn't just about reports and recommendations, but it's also about action and change working with organisations in partnership. And then thirdly, we've got nearly 30,000 fellows and we've worked incredibly hard to engage them as a kind of social movement, but, you know, and, and a non-political, independent, active kind of group of people. The challenge, and we've got this beautiful house as well, of course, but the challenge is how do you get those bits to, to connect together? So at our very best, what happens is this, uh, something comes into the organisation from one angle or another, event, a fellow's idea, a piece of research, and then it, it metamorphoses in the organisation and it turns into something really interesting that, that generates um, energy and profile and impact. So a couple of quick examples. Um, we just had an event about an initiative we took about community banking, so a group of fellows one fellow in particular, but a group of wide group first came together and said that we need to do something about having more banks that are based in regions, places that raise money locally, that invest money locally. You know, this is a kind of idea that's been around for a long time because of the problems of the credit crunch and everything centralised in London and the effect that had on the rest of the country. We supported that initiative. Our head of economy has worked with them, sat on their board. We've had events here. We've used our networks to connect them to local government. And it is likely the first one of these banks to be launched next year, and then many more around the rest of the country. And they won't, you know, we will have been very active in making that happen. They won't be our banks. You know, we have a long history of floating things on. Or to take another very different example, a few years ago we did work on heritage, heritage index, we looked at heritage assets, participation around the country. And two years after that project finished, we've now got a network of fellows who are heritage ambassadors. So they are in places using the kind of material we generate and the ideas we generated to try to make sure the heritage is seen not as a, 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 a something which is about old buildings that are sapping limited resources, but the heritage is seen as an incredibly important place asset. You know, So at our best, we combine research, our capacity to communicate with large audiences, and our fellowship to produce a unique model of change. What's difficult for me, what's frustrating for me, and what I continue to work on, what I talk to all the chairs about is, how do we make that happen all the time? How do we 
one way I described it is how do you move from a bagatelle, you know, an old-fashioned kid's bagatelle where they, the ball goes up and it drops into one pocket or another into a, and instead of pinball machine, where ideas go careering around, you know, setting up buzzers and bells. How do we do that? And then secondly, because you know, our funding's okay. Uh, for us, funding is a frustration rather than a drama. We're, we're kind of all right financially. But in the end, we can only do research because we raise money for it. So how can I get through to trust and foundations and others that working with the RSA, because we have this array of different resources, is much more powerful than commissioning yet another research report, which won't get read, which might get you know half a column in The Guardian, might end up in a, the bottom of the minister's red box, but probably won't have much impact. How do I convince people who really want to achieve change well, the, that the RSA is a uniquely powerful organisation when it comes to our ability to combine these different facets? So, you know, I think we'll do it. I just, I just kind of wish it wasn't quite as hard as it's turning out to be. <laughs> I suppose when you, when you have that many plates spinning, it's always going to be difficult to try and... Uh try and connect them all and keep them that way. So that that was that was one of the sort of questions I I scribbled down in my notes. But what do you think is the fairest fairest criticism of the RSA and its methods? And I suppose from what you said, it would be that that it's that linking everything together no, and indeed consistently. No, I think there are a number of criticisms of the RSA which are perfectly valid, and we have to always bear in mind because you know. We were criticised being an elite institution because our fellows are elite because not that many people can afford 165 quid uh, a year. What I always say is, look, our fellows are an elite group, but they are people who give money to the RSA, and nearly all our work is designed to benefit society as a whole. And indeed, a lot of our work will benefit people, nearly very few of whom could ever afford fellowship. And, you know, we sponsor academy schools in the West Midlands and working class areas, so. Our beneficiaries are not the elite, even if our funders are the elite. But we always have to be aware of the fact that our fellowship is a particular cross-section of society. It's not society as a whole. I think it's a fair criticism to be made of the RSA, and that's what a lot of these people who've been talking to me about becoming chair have said, which is it's an opaque organisation. You know, you, you can see one side of it. You see one facet of it. You see animates, or you see a research report on the future of work, or you, maybe you've heard of me, or maybe you listen to a podcast or whatever. Very, it's very hard to see the whole organisation. You know, it takes me quite some time, and that is a, it's difficult, and that is a really difficult conundrum because you know my trustees and I always say, look, you need to be clear on your communication, you need to get across what the RSA is. It's hard for people to understand it. Many trustees on the board don't even understand it, and I say, yeah, I know, but it is complicated. It is unique. I don't, it's, I don't know how to reduce it. You know, we've tried. You know, got to, you know, 21st century enlightenment is our strap line. We our mission statement is to enrich society through ideas and action. We talk about theory of change, which is think like a system, act like an entrepreneur. For a while, we dabbled with our mission being the power to create. So we tried all sorts of ways, and maybe we haven't persisted with them for long enough. But I do know that one of the, if you ask the trustees what the biggest critique of me would be, is why hasn't he found a way of describing the RSA, which is easy to get your head around? trying to describe it. Well, I think that's what they might say there. I mean, they, who knows what their real business is? <laughs> they wouldn't have told they won't tell me. You're trying to describe a Gordian knot, I suppose it is. I suppose it is somewhat difficult. And I, I, I suppose, linking back to what you just said, how do you get an organisation to choose the RSA and your method of social change over somebody else? It's kind of kind of loops back to some of the other stuff that we were talking about, these kind of signal and, and noise issues. Sort of how, do you, how do you convince people that that your corner of the buffet, buffet table is is the one that's worth their attention when when the smorgasbord is a kaleidoscope and it only keeps getting bigger. Yeah, it's a very good point. I think that... Uh, I think my only answer to that is we just have to stick with what we do. Um, so my answer to this critique, which is when people don't know what the RSA is, is to say in the end, it's the content. You know, you, no, no one's interested in other people's organisations, really. No, you know, that's, that's the truth. I mean, I, you know, one of the people who put their name forward for chair is, um, has been chair of another think tank. And they didn't really know much about the RSA. And there's not that many think tanks in London, but they, they you know a great deal about it. So people aren't really interested in other people's institutions. What, what, what it is that gets people to understand is the product. Actually. And we just have to keep generating products so that people start going, yeah, that smells and looks like an RSA project. And then, you know, Apple is a good example 
you know, of a company, which it's not, it's not Apple per se. It's Apple's products speak to what Apple is. So what is Apple? It's, it's beautiful. It's easy to use. It makes you feel good about yourself. You know, and that's what it's done. And, you know, Steve Jobs, you know, crazy, terrible man in all sorts of ways. But, you know, <laughs> what he got was every product has got to speak to this core of this core and you know he you know, so that's why famously got rid of lots of things that, that were being made that didn't speak to that so I think when our new chair comes in one of the things that he or she is bound to kind of say is look there must be stuff you can stop doing there must be stuff that you can that, you know how do you get it so that everything you do reinforces this kind of core this it, core idea it would probably be encouraging that I, I've been to a few events in Manchester recently and the language when, uh, for the for the people who are hosting and introducing those events, is very similar to the way that you're speaking. Right. So you know, so it, it does sound like like everyone's sort of starting to yeah, move. Yeah, move yeah. Well, maybe that. that's that's it's, really it's really, all about yeah. follow up and engagement. That's really and, heartening to hear. And not just being here and now. I'm a, I'm a really impatient person. Um, <laughs> I feel that. And my head of external affairs. So I asked her about a year ago. You know, what can we do to get you know. To, understand all this and she said to me you can stop having ideas <laughs> that, you know that, that, that sounds like a compliment but it wasn't a compliment what she meant is you can stop kind of constantly trying to reinvent some new way just decide what it is and even if it's not perfect stick at it you know stick at it until people understand it and then when people have got it you can maybe start to gradually evolve it but you, you can have a starting point and if you keep changing I mean I, I was reading you know I was reading this arrow four years ago the other day and it had two concepts, which at the time I thought were our big concepts, and I thought I've not used them for two years. So it's like, you know, that's a bit. That's that's one of my failings. So maybe we just need to say, look, it, it will come. Stick at it, and it will come. I used to consider it disheartening when I when I read old essays and things like that, and, and disagreed with myself. But now I now I consider it. Perhaps it's a get out of jail free card or something. But now I consider it that I've grown or developed or something. No, I often make people laugh by saying that the. Uh, Tony Blair wasn't an easy person to work for because he wasn't an easy person to convince if he didn't agree with you. I'd say the only time I ever heard Blair say he was wrong was when he said he should have, he should have listened to himself earlier. <laughs> Excellent, I like that. Well, in fact, I disagree with myself four or five years ago for the most part, so well, perhaps I, I should just have more self-confidence. Um, well, you're much younger. You're, you know, <laughs> you're, you're much younger than me personally and you're much younger than the RSA. I suppose so. Um... I was. Uh, I read your your recent article on democracy, which uh, on democracy and democratic renewal, and um, I, I don't. I don't want you to do too many previews for your um, annual lecture, uh, but um, I have done that. It's the the way you mind your lecture is to talk about it, talk about it, talk about it, do it, carry on talking about it, and then see. Oh, well, fair you enough. Know, whether whether um, you know England, if England win their group, their matches starts the minute my annual lecture stops so you know you, you should never if you if you think you've got something useful to say don't let it all rest on one particular moment on oh. one particular day because well I shan't worry too much about spoilers then before the, before the dear old Queen Mother died we this used to be known as the Queen Mother phenomenon which is you know don't wait for your big launch day because you never know that might be the day when Queen Mother dies so. <laughs> that's a good analogy um, so the the most recent article blog post you've you've written sort of is a, a preview of your of your lecture and it, it is it's focused very much on on democracy and the I don't think it would be unfair to characterize it as the the assault on democracy that you, that you put it in in your um, in your article and the the reforms needed to the liberal democracy and what, what was that phrase in it saving the foundations wasn't it was was was, was what you wanted to do uh, but you and you referenced Stephen Pinker in there I'm about halfway through enlightenment now do you think it's that bad? Do I think Stephen Pinker's that bad? No, no, no. Do, you, do I think the, the global... Oh, do I think... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, when you, Finally, when Stephen Pinker was here, I confronted him with this, isn't, has a democracy gone into reverse? And he argues against that. He disagrees with that. Um, which I thought was a little complacent, to be honest. Um, uh, I, I think that there are strong reasons... To believe that this is more than a kind of blip. So look, you know, in the time we've got left, mm -hmm. um, let, let me kind of develop the thesis. So I'd argue that 
there are many signs that liberal democracy, and that's both halves of this, so it's democracy and liberalism, they don't have to go together. You can have undemocratic liberalism, which is to a certain extent what we have in China, and you can have democratic illiberalism, which is you know, arguably what you've got in kind of Russia or Hungary, where there are democratic systems, but, but, not, but no freedom of press or freedom of association, civil liberties under attack. So you can have these kind of different, uh, you can have these different models. Um, uh, so I think that liberal democracy, which is the combination of democratic institutions and things like respect for the rule of law, freedom of association, freedom of press, and all that kind of stuff, that it, it does look as though that's under pressure. It is under pressure, uh, as I say, both from democratic regimes that are not liberal. Um, you know, Turkey is another example, Hungary, Poland, Russia. Um, but also it is under pressure from systems which have got quite liberal market economies and relatively high levels of freedom at various levels in those societies, but they are not democratic, and ultimately they are you know, ultimately the authoritarian power sustained by China. So you've got, you've got the fact that it feels like there are alternatives, that's one thing. Secondly, of course, one particular set of those alternatives, in a populist, illiberal view, it does seem to be in the ascendancy. So, you know, it is Trump, and it is Orban, and it is... Something you know, I was only in Poland and Italy has got populist government now, and Slovenia elected a popular populist party was, was first. Now, these are all different varieties of populism. Brexit was to a certain extent populism, but that's also a more complex story. So, there are different offers on the table now to liberal democracy, and some of those offers look as though they are, or one of those offers, a populist offer in its various forms, it looks like it's more popular at the moment. Also, opinion polls suggest that people are not as enamoured by the basic principles of democracy as they might have been in the past. More people, including young people, are willing to answer yes to questions like, wouldn't it be better if we had a strong person in charge, not held back by parliament and politicians? You know? So you, you've got that going on. Then the third thing I'd say is that the things that, that, that... There are lots of different things driving this, and it's a complex picture. But some of the things that seem to be driving it, like frozen living standards, like the impact of social media and the kind of toxicity of what goes on on social media, uh, kind of echo chambers of social media, like people's worries about elements of globalization, you know, migration, immigration, extremism, you know, just issues around identity, and also just the impact still of economic globalization on people's jobs and people's places. Um, that these kinds of factors don't look as though they're going to go away. Technology is another one that's leading people to feel fearful about, about the modern world. So the reasons that people feel pessimistic and they feel um, disillusioned, those underlying factors aren't going to change any time soon, it feels to me. And then you add in the Asher Monk's argument, which is that it looks as though the reason we were committed to democracy might have been a combination of the fact that we, you know, my father was a child in the Second World War. My mother was born at the end of the Second World War. So, you know, I am only one generation removed from people who, you know, who were there when we were fighting for our democratic lives. So on the one hand, people value democracy because it felt like it could be taken away from us. And now, of course, you know, old you are, but uh, 31. 31. So, you know, some of your age, you know, the fight for democracy is old, old history. It's just what it is, just what we have with all its warts and all. And on the other hand, democracy was only on favour because it delivered the goods, as long as it was delivering year-on-year -year economic growth, as long as people felt the people in charge knew what they were doing. But now it looks like democracy doesn't deliver the goods. Now it looks like democracy is not good at making long-term decisions. People like Yasha Monk argue that it turns out our commitment is much shallower. Now, that's what's going on. I think that there are two prevalent accounts of how we should respond to this. One is, it's a kind of blip, and even if it isn't really, it's healthy, actually. You know, the kind of Clinton-Blair uh, consensus, the kind of neoliberal consensus was highly problematic. You know, it led to huge levels of inequality, etc., etc. You know, it was a, a liberal democratic form. The elite were in control. The people weren't in control. People, 
you know, if you look at all those referenda about Europe, which simply were reversed because the people didn't vote in the right way, leading up to the kind of Brexit decision. So there's that argument that says, look, actually, populism is a good corrective. You know, it, it'll shake things up, and that's good. And actually, what will come out of this will be a renewed system, and the elite will have to respond. And there's another view, which is a kind of well, maybe democracy is just going to become much less important. You know, maybe democracy becomes a much less significant part of our lives. It might just still be there, but it will kind of limp on. And actually, we'll live in a world where technology and markets really determine what happens in our lives. And um, democracy becomes almost like a kind of showbiz, really. It doesn't really have a much of a kind of grip. It doesn't really have the capacity to kind of do much. Um, it feels like it's become as it is. I mean, David Ronsonman would be the person who kind of has argued that perspective. I think that you know, democracy will probably limp on in some in some other you know some different kind of form. Now, those are both interesting views. My view, which is a view I'm giving you in my new lecture, has, has the great drawback of sounding rather boring in comparison to those two big views. My view is, before we decide whether or not democracy is broken and that populism is the answer. Or why don't we just why don't we recognise that democracy has got some really quite deep and inherent structural flaws, and if we could address those deep and those deep structural flaws, at least we would know whether the system worked with a better set of um, processes and structures than it does at the moment. And the two things that I think we should be doing a lot more of, which could revivify democracy, is first of all devolve power. Because it is interesting to me that all around the world, mayors are more popular than presidents and prime ministers. And I think the way in which power, and also, you don't, and you can look at America, you don't get any of the kind of toxicity and sectarianism in city government that you get in state government and federal government. You know? And that's because city leaders, you know, when it snows, city leaders don't set up committees, they get out a shovel. You know? And so I think, and also city leaders know the way to make things happen is to create coalitions, you know, not to pass laws. So, on the one hand, I devolve power because it feels as though politics is healthier at the local level. And then the second thing, which is what I'm going to argue for most of all of my lecture, is more use of deliberative democracy. So that's robust mechanisms like citizens' juries, citizens' assemblies, which get ordinary citizens, a random group of representatives of citizens, to look at a difficult issue like you know, legalisation of cannabis or road pricing or how we should fund social care. It's an intensive process. We know it works. It's been used all around the world. Citizens, when they're informed, given all sides of the argument, are very capable of reaching very sensible views. The Margaret Mead quote. Yeah, yeah, Margaret Mead. You know, a small group of determined people can change the world. And it's not that direct democracy supplants representative democracy. It's that it, it gives elected people a mandate to act. Because deliberative democracy addresses two strokes three fundamental problems of representative democracy. First of all, representative democracy provides an incredibly blunt mandate. So if we voted for our favourite supermarket every five years, and whichever supermarket won, even though it only got 31% of the poll of the, of, the, of the total number of shoppers, that was the supermarket we had to go to, and then that supermarket would decide what to put in our basket. We would hate supermarkets, right? So that's the first problem. The second problem is that the second someone is elected as a representative, they cease to be representative as a human being. Well, it's a, it's a physical impossibility, of course. If you've been elected with a very narrow margin, 50% of the constituency or so is behind you, the voters in the constituency are, but 50% of them aren't, and they have the opposing political but it's view. More, it's more than that. It's that when you become a politician, as far as the public's concerned, by dint of being a politician... Oh, yeah, I well, you that, cease to be a representative member of the human race. I think that feeds into what you were just saying. I think people almost don't see it as a proper, as a proper job, almost. Yeah. So there's a contempt. And, all, and, it, and, and in many ways, that's, that's right. Because, you know, if you're a politician, you're enthralled to your party. And parties are made up of pretty weird people, to be honest. Well, you know? Know, but, and indeed, often people who can afford to get into politics in the first place. Because yeah. it does well, help to be independently you, wealthy. You look at the two major parties. You've got a late party that's dominated by kind of true believers, which is fine. But, but there are true, true believers who's whose view of the world is not really in line with the kind of, you know, I would say on, on many issues with the broader population, even with kind of more moderate progressives. You know, it's a quite, quite a zealous kind of movement now. And then you've got a Tory party with the average age of 70. And there's, you know, there's probably only about 90,000 people in the party now. So 
The, by the way, it will be them who would choose a new prime minister, Theresa May stood down. You know? So the public's view that politicians cease to be representative of them when they become representatives has got a certain truth. Now, I think what a citizen's jury is a citizen's jury is drawn up by a group of 24 people chosen from the public, ordinary folk. They are representative. They're not politicians. They're just like you and me. Um, and they look at a decision and they can provide a fresh mandate. And so, you know, it gives ministers the chance to stand up and say, look, 24 of your peers looked at road pricing. They decide road pricing was the right thing to do. I'm going to go ahead with road pricing. And maybe it won't make it popular, but at least the public will say, well, it, you know, we it was great. We were involved. Because, and this is my final point, I go on about this, but I, I, I think this is a point that's worth making. People say, well, you know, but there's been lots of citizens' juries all around the world, and, you know, we'll carry on experimenting with it. And I say, no, it's not enough. You've got to make it regular. It's got to be consistent and regular. And at the heart of our system. And the reason for that is that people have got to recognise it. They've got to say, okay, I know what that is. And yeah, I understand why you're doing that. At the moment, if someone calls for a citizen's jury, the general attitude is scepticism and suspicion and misunderstanding. Well, what is it? And who are these people? And what are you doing? And can I trust it? And who sets the rules? You need to say to people, no, actually, there's very, very good processes. They've been used multiple times. They do work. You know, it is robust. And to prove that, what it says is, if we had a magi- if we had an investigating magistrate system in Britain, so if our, we decided guilt by investigating magistrates, and someone came along and said, you know what we should do to decide guilt in criminal cases? We should draw 12 people from the street with no prior knowledge, regardless of their level of education. We should stick them in an overheated room for four days and get people in wigs to tell them stuff, and then they'll just have, they'll have to go and make a decision. People say, that's completely mad. What a ridiculous way of deciding something. It should be decided. But of course, that's the jury system. And actually, the jury, for all its flaws, is just about the only institution in our society that hasn't come under sustained attack in recent years. Because at the heart of the jury is this beautiful, beautiful and pure idea, which is, if I, if I had been in that jury, I would have made the same decision. Based on that information available to me. Yeah, indeed, it does. It works. And my only my only concern about that that form of democracy is that whilst at the local level and at an Indian national level, to some degree, it would probably work. It's similar to my my criticism with my broad criticism with Labour's policy doctrines at the minute. I, I don't think they're uh, on a national level. I think they work, and I think most people think that they work. I think most people's concern is 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 uh, in the world stage, national uh, national security, and that kind of thing, and foreign policy. And it's it's a similar concern with that. Whilst I, whilst I would certainly trust a citizen jury, and I'm, I'm not suggesting yeah. you're suggesting we farm out foreign policy to citizen juries, but it, it has its limits, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but you know, don't 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 make the you know the the, the best the enemy of the good. I and mean, if it's improved and strengthened our system, then this is what I'll be arguing. I'll be arguing. Let's try devolving more power and using direct and using social democracy. Let's try to. On the basis of the foundations of the system we've got, let's see if we can build a better structure rather than tearing the structure down or saying that it doesn't matter if we set fire to the structure. Because I think, you know, those people who say populism is fine, it's just an adjustment, it's great. I, I accuse them of complacency because they need to, you know, I mean, David Ronson is right, history will not exactly repeat itself, but nevertheless, things can get much, much worse than they are now. And that's where it is worth reading your Stephen Pinker. It is worth being reminded that the Western democratic system, for all its flaws, has delivered an enormous amount. It continues to. Yeah. And on the other hand, I'm not happy with the kind of assumption that we just move into a world where all that really matters to us is kind of what technology companies do and what the market does and the democracy becomes a kind of entertaining pantomime. I do think that in the end, I, I want our democratic system to be the most important system in our country. So let, if you believe that, let's just try out. Let's just see what we can do to improve things within the kind of broad parameters uh, of the system. I think there must be a point of balance between all these conflicting imperatives, mustn't there? Uh, because, well, otherwise we're just flinging ourselves from extreme to extreme again. And in, in my analysis, that's part of our problem in the first place here, as we tiptoe towards one extreme, then it, it sort of flips yeah. the other way. In, in great, thing about citizen, how you get great, great thing about citizens' jury is one of the consistent findings is that put people in a room, whatever their starting point, and they are pretty good at reaching consensus. They're pretty good at, 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 at agreeing what they disagree about and agreeing what they agree about and, and coming to a view which is perfectly reasonable, not in great detail, but broad principles. You know, that's what, as they did in Ireland, you know, for the referendum. Right. That's the third the knock way. on the door is that it means I'm going to have to speak to my final 
since the third way is dead, perhaps we need to find a fourth way, eh? <laughs> now, when it comes to the Corbyn project, I would only say this. A lot of Corbyn policies I've got sympathy for. My worry about Corbyn is governance. My worry is about their ability, is the ability of that project with its baggage, yeah. ideological baggage, organisational baggage, historical baggage. I worry that, you know, in the end, what you go into government with this set of policies is just the starting point, and then within a week you're in a different kind of world. And I worry about the ability of the party and all that is around it to be able to deal with and respond well to the kind of pressures it will come under. And the history of governments with very left-wing programmes surviving the rigours of office are not great. Oh, we may find we may find out. <laughs> thank, thank you, Matthew. Cheers. Thank you. It's a lot simpler.